0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we discuss the latest and greatest in Canadian politics with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. How of Canadians view Bill C-18? And how did the public react to Google's concerns about the bill? And we cover all things in American politics as well with Reggie Cicchini, Global's man in Washington. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900CHML... A busy day, of course, a busy week last week in Ottawa, uh, with the uh, hearings starting, of course, about the uh, in- Emergencies Act Inquiry. And uh, that and lots more to discuss here with our first guest, of course, uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull, who is the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Before we get to Laurie, I want to talk a little bit about the campaign itself and what's going on with the Emergencies Act. First of all, Laurie, thank you so much for the time. Great have with us here, as per usual, on a Monday.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Bill. And yep, uh, rainy Monday morning here in Ottawa.
0: Yeah, I've got the same thing going on here in Southern Ontario. I want to, I want to play a clip from last week's uh, hearing, uh, and I want to get your, your reaction to a, a conversation that I had with, over the weekend with a bunch of folks about this. Uh, this is a Victoria DeLaRonde, who is actually one of the first witnesses to testify before the inquiry uh, with the Emergencies Act, and uh, she says the protest was an assault on her hearing that left her hopeless and trapped in her home. Here's what she had to say.
1: I called and begged a friend, "Can you just please, I, I know you have to walk in and get me out. Can you? Can, uh, excuse me, can you just please come and get me out? And she did, and two days later, I had, we both had COVID.
0: Very emotional time uh, during her testimony, as others did. And these are people that actually lived in Ottawa and uh, experienced what was going on. Uh, and I, the question I was going to ask you, Laurie, is, is simply this. Is the purpose of an inquiry just simply to talk about the legality of, of whether or not the government should have done this, or do they want to talk about the circumstances? And the, in other words, her story is a very compelling story about, yes, we have to stop this thing. I, I know a lot of the opposition MPs don't look at it on a personal level. They're just saying the government didn't have the right to do it. They didn't meet the bar, of uh, all this sort of stuff. There's a lot going on here. But the human side of this, I think, is what we heard last week, and it was pretty emotional. I thought very compelling.
1: I agree with you. I think that that's exactly right. We're hearing the testimony from people who live in Ottawa, who work in Ottawa, and who really live this on a day-to-day basis. And their perspective on what happened, I think, is extremely important. I think the federal government wants, um, like, obviously, at the end of this thing, which the report won't come until next spring, so we've got a long way to go. Mm
2: -hmm. But for
1: this six-week period, we're hearing from witnesses. I think the federal government really wants to bring in the overall context and the mandate that they've given the commission is not you know a a direct what were the exact steps and that's it the mandate is very much to look at those contextual factors and to think about the severity of what was going on at the time, both from a public health perspective and a public safety perspective, as well as an economic perspective, and to think about all those things as factoring into the government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. Now, as you say, the opposition parties are like, no, that's that has nothing to do with it. We're looking at you know, was there any other legal option? And if there was, you were in the wrong. And so I think regardless of what the report says, we're going to get those competing narratives back and forth. And we'll hear that for a while.
0: Uh, and and again, it's going to be up, obviously, to to the commission itself as to how they want to go on this. But, uh, you know, when you hear testimony like that, and, and she was only one of many uh, Ottawa residents who spoke about this, uh, you know, the, the question that kept coming back to my mind is how could they not invoke the act to get these people out of there? Look at what they were doing to the, the people in this community. And we heard those stories anecdotally. And I know that some people are going to juxtapose her commentary and her testimony uh, with the fact that, well, I went up there for a couple of days and I didn't see anything, you know, well, you don't live there. And it's a different story when you're there and this is your community that's being impacted.
1: Oh, absolutely. And when, as you say, you live there and you've got these horns all day and you can't get away from it. And, you know, and to put on top of that, the fact that we were dealing with COVID and so, you know, movement is going to be restricted anyway. And then it's winter. And then, you know, like all these things factoring in to make, a, you know, an already pressing situation much worse. And so I think, right, like we we have to hear from the people who are actually, who were stuck with this thing, and who felt unsafe, and who felt, you know, who, who really experienced a, a significant amount of Discomfort, um, you know, threats to to what they were doing, like they, f- people feeling like either they couldn't leave the house or they, you know, oh, it was just it was a nightmare. Uh,
0: I know that uh, part of the testimony too. Well, Catherine McKenna, who's a city councilor, not always, I guess she's running for mayor up there now too. I guess since Jim Watson's not running uh, anyway, but she talking to her constituents within the downtown area, and she said there was a sense of fear, terror, and dismay that they felt abandoned by their city and by their police, so, and that's that's a very very stressful situation uh, to find yourself in to say look at th- I, this this is going on and nobody seems to stop it and I, I can understand the frustration and the angst that an awful lot of people in the downtown core would feel over that long period of time one day is one one day too many but if it goes on and on and on like this it's got to have an impact on them
1: oh yeah and katherine mckinney is mm-hmm. running for mayor uh-huh. and um they were making testimony last week and i think you know One of the things that we're going to be hearing is not only from the residents, but also from the people who are representing the city. And that's going to be a big part, I think, of building this argument around whether the federal government was in the right, because the test is going to be what else could have been done and by whom. And so I think one of the complex parts is going to be. Maybe there were other legal levers at the time that could have been pulled, but what if the appropriate people didn't pull them? And so I can remember you and I talking about, you know, like local police maybe not giving parking tickets where these trucks were parked. And why did they not do that? And what sorts of steps could have been taken by other orders of government at different times and they weren't taken, which then left the federal government in a position where it was like, well, there are other laws that could have been could have been used here, but they weren't and we can't use those. This is the only one we have. So we have to do that. Like, I wonder if that's going to be part of this, which will then make the the results of the report and the conclusion very uh, nuanced as opposed to totally straightforward and black and white because then it gets into you know really what w- what were the tools the federal government had at its disposal and of course, this isn't gonna be a finding of legal guilt or innocence. This is gonna be a judgment about whether this was appropriate. And then there will be some recommendations coming from the commission as well. And I'm, assume, I'm really interested to hear whether he makes some recommendations around security on Parliament Hill. And again, as you and I talked about, I think a lot of us were surprised at how little the federal government could do by way of immediate response when Parliament Hill was under threat. And so it could be that there's some recommendations around doing that differently.
0: Well, and, and this can be, I hate to be trite about it, a game changer, though. And, you know, when when all of a sudden there's a threat to security, well, 10 Downing Street in London, I mean, used to be accessible to the public. You could walk right up and knock on the door. Well, they wouldn't let you knock on the door. But, but you know, since the bomb threats, the IRA bomb threats, back, you can't go down that street on Downing Street anymore. It's blocked off uh, for security reasons. Same thing with the White House in Washington. I mean, the, the, there's our permanent... Uh, changes now to the security around there. And, and something like that may have to happen with Parliament Hill now, too.
1: Oh yeah. And I mean, I think we can also look back to that tragic shooting that happened uh back in 2014, where somebody was able to get up on Parliament Hill, get into get inside, you know, and and I mean, I, I don't I'm not the right person to make judgments about what we ought to have done about things in the aftermath of that, but it just seems like there's there's going to be a lot of questions about do we have the right security situation and are we able to respond to threats in the way that we should and even now um on Wellington Street before Parliament Hill in Ottawa like you can't drive there now there's these big concrete fire or sorry uh, mm-hmm. flower pots that prevent cars from getting up there and so they have made some changes but i wonder if they'll think about um you know kind of who like who's actually in charge of the security on Parliament Hill and whether different actors can take over because at different times the Ottawa police said like we're not we're not zoned for this like this is not what we're meant to do yeah. we're local police force we can't respond to what's basically like a growing threat that is coordinated and financed and you know this is a completely different thing
0: anyway uh, outgoing mayor jim watson is going to testify today and i'm sure there's going to mm-hmm. be some more compelling testimony about that so we'll uh, watch that with great interest uh let me pivot if i could to another uh, big change yesterday last week rather and that of course was the uh, swearing in of danielle smith as the new premier of alberta uh, and uh, of, as, as you and I have talked about in the past, Laurie, she's a very controversial figure uh, because of her past history. Uh, when she got out of politics for a while, she did well. She did this. She did a talk show in Calgary for mm-hmm. the longest time, a very popular talk show. Uh, and now she's back into politics. She's the premier. And it didn't take long for her after she got sworn in to jump right back into the hot water uh, with her comments that uh, that she thought the the most aggrieved people she'd ever met in her life, the ones that had been most discriminated against, were anti-vaxxers, those that did not get vaccinated uh, which raised a few eyebrows, if I could understate it that way.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I, there are a few, I think, you know, first weeks for politicians that have been as rough as hers. And, you know, perhaps Liz Truss is having a similar situation, but yeah. a totally different reasons. Um, I think, yes, Danielle Smith comes, she she is, you're right, she's very controversial, she um, came to this win on the sixth ballot, I think, and so it wasn't a complete slam dunk for her, right, this isn't a Pierre Polyev situation, this is somebody who kind of put this consensus around her together over a series of ballots, and so I think there are some questions to be asked around how, for me anyway, around how much the party is is solidly behind her, and whether they envision a win in the next election or what, and what she can do between now and then to try to build the support around her a bit more, and I think there are people in the party who may feel like you know this sort of approach to politics where you're sending out these blasts of messages that are designed, I think, to kind of get people all whipped up around how you think the Trudeau government handled COVID nineteen and what you might take to be um, you know a kind of poor treatment of people who decided not to get vaccinated. Like it seems to me, Smith, like there's a kind of federal provincial dynamic to this too, where she's really taking a run at Trudeau and his lack of empathy for people who didn't who decided not to get vaccinated. She's trying to create a political constituency out of out of that group of people and make that lucrative for her politically. And I'm not sure that's going to work out. And I I don't think she's going about it in a way that's going to deliver anything for her, to be honest. And I think she's she's ending up now where she's more on the defensive than anything else, and that's not where a politician wants to be, where they're continuing to have to clarify what they said. And so as far as, you know, out of the gate, this is not a great week for her. And now she's got to figure out, I mean, I don't doubt that she'll be successful in her by-election, but she's got to get herself in the legislature and then figure out how to put forward a compelling narrative to re-elect the UCP before the election in May. So if I were Rachel Notley, (laughs) I don't know, I, I might be feeling okay.
2: Yeah,
0: uh, well, th- there has to be an election. I, I think you and I talked about this last week when, I, just after she won the leadership, uh, that being da- Daniel Smith, uh, they said, are you going to call a snap election? She says, no, because I'd probably lose. Uh, so she's got that in the <laughs> yeah. back of her mind, too, which I thought that's very, very candid comment, but I think probably realistic at the same point. But we've seen this playbook before, though, haven't we? I mean, to a certain extent, maybe Pierre Polyev, certainly other politicians have done this. And and there was an interesting op ed piece uh, in the CBC about this the other day that said basically, here's what they do you convince a dominant group that they are being marginalized. Well, she's doing that. You know, you people that didn't get vaccinated, you are being persecuted. Uh, You know, and you don't deserve that. And, And that was the narrative that's going on. Uh, and you know that they are the silent majority and we have to stand up for your rights blah 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 and and it works it may be a small portion of the population that they're appealing to but th- these are people that need to hear that message and want to hear that message and people like that deliver it uh and they win those people over and and, and they are, they become loyal subjects to that 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 passion and that narrative
1: right and it it is like there is i i read the article by uh, professor wesley in alberta and yeah. it's, it's a very 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 strong article and one of the points he makes is about this kind of fictitious narrative around almost like a fictitious character that is your quote-unquote typical Albertan, right? And so you draw this picture of a person who you start to see yourself in, even if you're not yourself yourself. Th- that person right and so most people have gotten vaccinated the vast majority of people have gotten vaccinated so how you know when you think about it how could this be a politically clever thing to start to appeal to this small constituency of people who feel disenfranchised and discriminated against and generally cracked upon because they decided not to get vaccinated like how does that make political sense if there's not very many of those people anywhere but it's because of this sort of creating this fictitious character, where even if you are vaccinated, you start to see yourself having common, you know, things in common with this person who is the subject of persecution by the people in power. And then that starts to build a narrative that the powerful people actually start to feel like they're not powerful and they need to get something back. And you hear that narrative very clearly in what Polyev is doing.
0: It's interesting, and I don't want to get too deeply into the narrative, though, from a uh, Professor Wesley, but he talked about this mindset that people have, and I, 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 as soon as I read this, I it started to resonate. You know, what's an Albertan look like? And he says it's a cowboy, an oil worker, a farmer, you know, and they're wearing blue jeans and of course a stetson, uh, and probably wear cowboy boots, and you know, and and they're you know right of center politically, and, and probably living on a ranch as opposed to in the city. Well, that's that's not really what Alberta is all about, but that's the perception that they're playing into. I mean, I mean, you know, the two largest cities in that province both have Muslims as mayors because the population yeah. has changed; it's evolved. Uh, But but they don't play to that. They play to that small majority that's saying, hey, we're getting squeezed out here.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, as you say, there's there's incredible complexity in the the population of that province as there is in all provinces and there is this weird um you know coming back to this this old definition of what it meant to be albertan that seems to make you know make some sense politically because it seems to you know they she must think this is going to work or else she's not going to do it mm-hmm. but it's problematic and i i mean i it's making assumptions too about voter turnout it's making assumptions about people self-selecting out of the process because they're not going to see themselves in it. Like the whole thing is extremely cynical.
0: It's a fascinating narrative and just to see how this is going to play out. Uh, Week two of uh, her reign as uh, the premier uh, begins today and we'll see what's going to happen. Uh, Laurie, Mm -hmm. always a pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Uh, Stay well and we'll talk again soon, I hope.
1: Yes, please. Take care, Bill.
0: Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the uh, Director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University with uh, her weekly look at politics uh, from our nation's capital.
3: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Big kerfuffle going on in Ottawa these days, and this is about a very controversial piece of legislation uh, that the federal government's trying to put through. It's called Bill C-18. It's the Online News Act. You know, we've talked about it a number of times on the program. Well, now a national survey commissioned by Google Uh, which basically characterizes this new bill as flawed and a potential vehicle for misinformation has been slammed by the federal government. Uh, They say what they're doing here is trying to avoid accountability. Now, Abacus Data did the survey, and and we've had representatives from Abacus on the show many times, of course. They're a very reputable firm uh, that does national polling, Uh, but it was done at the behest of Google and uh, suggesting that, of course, that means this is not a subjective point of view because Google basically wanted to get information or spread information, that's the accusation from the government, uh, that this is a bad bill and it's going to be terrible. And there's a lot of back and forth going on here uh, about accountability and who's right and who's wrong and and whether or not this even should have been published. It's, It's information, and there's always i think a, a benefit to having information out there for us to make an informed decision about this stuff uh but who's right and who's wrong and and what's going on with this because this is all about what's going to be online and and and, and the responsibility of what goes online uh to bring us some context into this we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, jeffrey devorkin uh, he is, of course, a senior fellow at Massey College, a former director of journalism at the University of Toronto, and author of an interesting book that you should read. It's called Trusting the News in a Digital Age. And uh, yeah, I know initially some people are going to say, well, we don't. Uh, well, let's talk about that, too, because I think that's part of the discussion. Uh, Jeff, great to have you back on the program. I hope you're doing well these days.
2: I'm doing well, as you asked, and, and I Good. hope you are, too
0: we are we are let's let's talk a little bit about this very controversial piece of legislation bill c18 uh which a number of the online companies including google and other platforms are saying is discriminatory uh, the government says this is necessary uh this is the overall debate and and this is probably going to move forward because i know the liberals have support of the ndp at least in, in principle on this bill as well uh is this going to hamstring uh, the, the the these platforms is it good for the journalism is it good for information gathering what, what's your read on this
2: well, I must say, first of all, the fact that Google commissioned a poll and put, its, and put its own corporate name on it means that they wanted to insist that it had a certain level of credibility, even mm-hmm. though a lot of people, especially in government, are saying, well, Google commissioned this, so it can't be all that uh, neutral. And of course, it isn't neutral. Here's the thing that I am concerned about. I think this is about follow the money. If this bill goes through, as the government uh, proposes it will go through, the unanswered question is, who's going to pay to monitor the Internet? This is a gigantic proposition. News organizations uh, have been, for the most part, pretty reliable and responsible about who they put in the newspaper or on the air or on their website. Uh, They make sure that... uh, that the crackpots are are excluded. Uh, So I appreciate you putting me on the air. This is very, very affirming. (laughs) Um, But one of the things that a lot of media organizations have been concerned about is how many people do, more people do they have to hire to monitor everything that comes in and gets posted on various websites? And the volume of of content and comments that is posted on Facebook and on Twitter and on Google is extraordinary. Um, And it is, as I mentioned, a tsunami of content. And the question is, how do you maintain the, the credibility of your organization when someone you think has a very strange idea gets on your website and posts it? Are you responsible for that? If, if, like a lot of media organizations, they have Facebook pages, is Facebook responsible for that? Who, in the end, is going to police this? And I think that's the issue. Uh, the question that Google raises, I think, legitimately, is do Canadians want the federal government to determine what constitutes responsible and reliable information and, and, and who doesn't? And I think that this is, the, this is the dilemma that we're all in right now. Mostly, uh, news organizations say, okay, we're going to do a story on, say, the, uh, the the people who are responsible for the, uh, the, the blockade in Ottawa in last February. Who do they put on the air to represent that? Is it someone who ordinarily wouldn't be seen as a credible spokesperson? Do they have to put someone on simply because they the the blockade people the convoy people captured the media's attention for more than a month and now there's a hearing in Ottawa about this to what extent do you put people on your media whose ideas are shall we say not entirely legitimate by most standards and so we're in a free speech dilemma right now we want the ability of citizens to be able to express themselves freely, but we don't want people who are going to deform the media landscape in some way and get people crazier, as we're seeing in the states right now. Yeah. So this is the so we're we believe in free speech, but we believe in responsible speech, and in, and who pays for that? That's the dilemma.
0: Well, and again, it's, you know, the old idea, but it's in the eye of the beholder or the ear of the beholder, I guess, depending on on the the medium we're talking about here. Uh, Because, I mean, you and I have talked about this in the past. I mean, I don't know how many people I've run across. I've been doing this for a few years now. Uh, And, uh, you know, people say, well, I saw it in the paper, so it must be true. Well, no, not necessarily. You know, but if if somebody decided to print it, but that speaks to me. I don't think it's so much naivety as they said, well, there are standards. Uh, for radio for broadcasting and for for newspapers to a certain extent and there are some guardrails so if it's in there they must have a, at least you know checked those boxes well that that's kind of a, a blurry line these days too but on the internet there's basically no rule and, and I know you know the platforms like Google and others will say well we'll we'll police that well they're not doing a very good job of it so you know which is why I guess the government feels it's their duty to step in. Uh, But that's that, again, reminds me of that old thing, you know, the worst thing you can ever hear from somebody is I'm here from the government and I'm here to help you uh, because you don't know
2: what's going to happen as a result of that. And and I think that's the quandary we're in now. I think that's exactly right, Bill. And and, um, we have to figure out a way that we can use uh, the digital culture more effectively. One of the things that I've been I, I don't know enough about this, so I'm kind of trying to inform myself. But the whole idea of artificial intelligence probably needs to be made more uh, apparent. If you could put some kind of artificial intelligence monitoring, that certain words and phrases would trigger an alarm inside the editorial ranks to say, "Uh uh-oh, somebody has just posted this, we think this might be dangerous, you have to have a look at this and decide whether you want it or not. But this is gonna require human beings, uh, Mm -hmm. thinking human beings who are able to make decisions in a relatively short period of time. And that's the dilemma we're in in this digital age is that everything moves so quickly. The idea of having kind of measured responses to a difficult situation is increasingly difficult. Um, And so for the moment, Government is saying, well, you police yourselves or we're going to get involved in this. And I think that that's going to be a very important motivator for media organizations and for the big uh, operators like Google and Facebook and and et cetera to figure out uh, how we have to do this. How much is it going to cost? Will our uh, shareholders support us in doing this? It's it's a complicated we're in a very complicated place right now.
0: And and you're right. This is not a black and white issue. There's so much gray going on here. Uh, And even, as you mentioned, about accountability. I mean, Google's assertion here is that if this bill goes through, the Canadian Radio and Television Commission, the CRTC, uh, would basically, they say, uh, be the filter. They would monitor everything. Now, the government says, no, that's not going to be the case. They have an administrative role. I don't know what that means, quite frankly. Uh, because somebody's going to have to make the call, yay or nay, or yeah, that's good, or no, or no, it's not good. And uh, they haven't really defined exactly who that's going to be or even what the parameters are.
2: Well, and I think that's why there has to be a kind of meeting of the minds on this, uh, which involves uh, government, uh, media organizations, citizens, uh, to figure out a better way of doing this. Because right now we're stumbling in the dark on all of this. So what we're seeing now is Kanye West, who now goes by the name of Yay. Um, has been banned from Twitter and, and Google uh, for a number of anti-Semitic uh, statements that he's made. And he said, fine, I'll go to another uh, website called Parley, Parler um, in the United States. And so he's now posting his 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 very, very weird stuff on this other website. There's always going to be, certainly in the United States and maybe on the dark web, so-called, Uh, opportunities for someone to make some money over somebody else's craziness. And so this becomes part of the issue is that to what extent should you, Bill, in your responsibility as a broadcaster and a journalist have to monitor all the weird stuff that comes across your email, just to make sure that it doesn't uh, offend the values of your station and your network. And I think that the, everybody's kind of concerned about this. Um, I know in back in the day uh, at the CBC, when there was a referendum in, on separatism in Quebec, and in the news department, we said, we're going to cover this fairly. And what was considered to be fair in the news department was considered to be biased by upper management. I remember getting approached by a boss saying, you have to put so many people from the Parti Québécois on your radio, on the radio. And I said, well, we have to cover the news and the reliability of the news also involves people saying, okay, there's a great issue in the country and here's a media organization that's trying to contextualize it and, and help people understand it. And for some people, uh, not many, thankfully in uh, at that time, they said no 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 you have to you have to limit what the anti-canadian sentiment is and we said no we have to reflect reality and that's that's a real challenge i mean is how are we going to do that stay true to our mission of providing reliable information serving the public as citizens but not giving undue opportunities to uh, to people with whom we may disagree on a personal or on a political level
0: and and that's, yeah, and that's the quandary, and you're right, I mean, you know, in, in my line of work, and your line of work, I mean, uh, anybody who's, a, you know, a friend of mine's a, a past publisher of a, you know, a national newspaper, difficult thing to do, because you, you may say, you know, so, some of them are, are no-brainers, okay, yeah, that's hate, that's hate, you know, that's anti-Semitic, or that's racially charged or whatever, that it's an easy one but what about opinion you know uh, where do you draw the line do you do you exclude somebody who has an opinion that differs from yours or what you consider to be right and if so is 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 that really being objective and i guess that's the big word everybody's talking about here is what's objective and what's subjective and 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 that's uh, well, that's a, an interesting
2: debate well and i i think one of the things that i've been mulling over is how do you consider information to be objective which is probably impossible and information that is subjective and back in the olden days again at the CBC we had two distinct streams of information we had the news department which tried to be as objective as possible knowing it could ne- that standard could never be met and there were the current affairs shows programs which allowed for a certain level of subjectivity to uh, to be on the on the air and I think that we need to kind of come back to, you know, back to the future, as it were, and talk about the, the willingness of media organizations to say, OK, our news department is going to present the news as clearly and as factually as possible. The talk shows and the, the documentary programs are going to allow for opinion, and that's going to allow for a level of subjectivity to be put on our media. And I think that, that that if we just kind of see the world in a little more, <laughs> a little more binary way between objective and subjective information, we might be able to help the government <laughs> uh, figure out what constitutes reliable information and what constitutes nonsense.
0: But do people actually make that distinction, though? I guess that's the big question here, Jeff. I mean, when, to to use yeah, your I, example about CBC and you know, when when Adrian Arsenal is is doing the national, she's reporting the news and that we assume is objective. but when rex murphy and chantelle iber come on that's opinion but people still look at that and say well that's the news show so you know they're they're biased well no it's it's two different things in the same broadcast but it's it's difficult for some people to make that distinction
2: right and i think that that's where you and i come in that we need to t- make a more uh concerted effort at helping the public understand the nature the the subtle nature of what constitutes information in a digital world and help the audience figure out for themselves how to determine what constitutes reliable information. And and thanks for the the plug on the book. That's, (laughs) That's exactly what the book is about, giving my students and the public some tools in order for them to say, well, wait a minute, how do we know? Where does this come from? Who's putting it on there? Who benefits from this? And just asking those short declarative sentences, questions that allows people to say, oh, okay, now I get it. And I think that we need to be more forthright and open with the audience. The audience is pretty smart, um, but I also think the audience is kind of overwhelmed right now with all that stuff that's out there. So yeah, Rex Murphy has a point of view. Adrian Arsenault, who I think is actually pretty terrific uh, a host of a program um i think that they can they will make sure that they are putting reliable information and a variety of information on their programs but that they have to be clearer and more transparent about how this happens and so the audience's trust in the media will will be reasserted again and i think that that's the challenge that you and i have individually and collectively
0: absolutely uh the book by the way is called trusting the news in a digital age go google it when you get a chance and it's an interesting read uh jeffrey as, as always thank you so much for this uh, stay well and uh, we'll talk again soon this isn't an issue that's going to go away anytime soon is it
2: no absolutely thanks so much
0: take care jeffrey devorkin senior fellow at massey college and uh former director of journalism at the university of toronto and and it's an interesting debate and discussion and, and as i say i know there, there's strong arguments on both sides uh, from the the platforms themselves, you know, because they don't want government looking over their shoulder with everything that goes on, and and I understand that, but there's so many facets to this that we've talked about, and you know, what's news and what's opinion is is one element of this. Uh, the other, of course, is is the fact that an awful lot of these platforms uh, will basically scoop uh, information from well places like this uh, or other news sites, and and simply put that on their web page, and you know, they don't pay for it. Uh, and this goes back to the debate that goes on years and years ago about copyrights and things of this nature who owns that is it public information etc cetera, etc cetera. so that and then i know the government's figured okay we're going to try to capture all of that in this one bill into bill c18 and i don't know that they've done a great job on that and i i'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say okay they probably had the best of intentions uh, but I think we have to have some more debate about this and some discussion about exactly what the ramifications of this might be. And uh, listen, yeah, listen to what Google and others have to say, but at the same time, they have to understand that there are some serious concerns about some of the stuff that does make it through those uh, those those platforms. And and especially, if you got a guy like you know Elon Musk who's apparently going to you know end up buying Twitter again after all. Uh, who's basically saying no rules, you know, say what you want and leave it up to the people to make their decision about whether that's right or wrong or whether it's, uh, you know, anti-Semitic or whatever the case might be. So there's a a lot to be discussed here.
3: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Just seems as if the the whole political atmosphere down south of the border in Washington these days is uh, as, as expected and has probably been the case for the last five or six years. Uh, centered around Donald Trump, there's so many aspects to this, and so many things going on. The Mar-a-Lago investigation, of course, with the uh, the, the secret documents uh, that uh, well, some suggest he still has possession of some of those. Anyway, uh, there's the Southern District of New York, which are looking into financial aspects, but also carrying on are the uh, January 6th committee hearings, and there was there was some devastating testimony that happened there uh, last week uh, to bring us up to speed on that and uh, the reaction that we're hearing in washington Please, uh, pleased to welcome back reggie cicchini reggie of course uh, is a correspondent for global news in the u.s Capitol. Uh, reggie thank you for the time today i guess the question a lot of people are asking and i know following your reporting from uh, over the weekend uh, on global national uh, is, uh, is is steve bannon going to jail i mean he's been convicted already they've been reticent to put a lot of these people behind bars but it kind of sounds as if they're leaning that way now it's it's a very
3: real possibility, uh, Bill. The Department of Justice uh, out this morning saying that they are recommending six months jail time for uh, Steve Bannon, along with a two hundred thousand 000- dollar. Um, fine. Uh, That sentencing obviously is is not happening today. It's set to go uh, on on Friday. But there is a Mm. real possibility here that Steve Bannon could find himself behind bars for what the government says was being defiant to that congressional subpoena and for simply um, turning his back to an ongoing congressional investigation. The government in their filing said that when uh, rioters attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, they were kind of flouting the rule of law. And by Steve Bannon, not, um, you know, going along with what Congress was telling him to do, that he in himself was exacerbating the attack by flouting the rules of law. So there could be some significant consequences for Steve Bannon for whatever his role was in January 6th. Uh,
0: The other name that keeps coming up, and I just wanted to get your read on what you've heard about this, is Roger Stone. Now, he was convicted, of course, previously and pardoned by Donald Trump uh, but his name has come up consistently uh, during some of the testimony here as as one of the the organizers, I guess, of the the insurrection uh, there. Now. Having been convicted already once, I mean, is is he liable? Can, I mean, can can they look at this guy again, or is double jeopardy in place here? What's what's the circumstance there, Reggie? Do you know?
3: That that one, I don't, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to get too into the legal weeds. That um, since I'm not a, a lawyer, but I mean, look, yeah. he's still a part of the conversation here, and the tape that was played from last week's hearing that showed the kind of role in the weeks and weeks before January 6 that Roger Stone may have played could um, could eventually come back to harm him you know he was held in contempt of congress for um not going along with the uh with the congressional subpoena here so i mean there are real opportunities here you know for bannon for for roger stone and, and then you know the list goes on and on bill uh, of people that could have been linked to january 6th i think you know at the end of the day the number of people that were subpoenaed the number of people that did or did not come forward you know whether on their own or whether by force i think once you push through all of the weeds there is still just a zero in target uh on the back of former president donald trump and whether or not he is going to wind up giving testimony because you know whether people want to push back whether they want to you know come up and speak freely at the end of the day the committee has put donald trump as the central figure in all of this uh and that that is who they are looking to hear from
0: well, and that's going to be interesting. Uh, well, they sort of have heard from my guest, Reggie, as you reported. Uh, he has responded uh, to the two chairs, of course, of the January sixth committee—a uh, fourteen-page letter, uh, uh, which is kind of astounding. But I guess you know this is this is a Trumpism, uh, rambling on and on. What, what was the content? What was he? I, I got to assume there were a lot of Trumpisms in there. Of course, there was. I mean, this was this was a relitigation of his loss
3: in twenty twenty. This was a relitigation going back to twenty sixteen because he was name-dropping Hillary Clinton. This was an opportunity for him to bring up things like Hunter Biden. Let's also point out the fact, Bill, that in that 14 page letter, they're included Uh, there was included a number of pictures of the crowd size of what was taking place on january 6th because that is what's of importance to donald trump there were talks about the committee's tv ratings what there wasn't was a response to the subpoena that was uh that had been authorized the day before Forcing or requesting testimony from the former president. He, the, essentially, what we had was 14 pages of nonsense um, and lies. And and you know that may cross an editorial line for some. But at the end of the day, the former president lost the election. And by trying to put on paper uh, that the election was rigged, that the election was stolen, that there was um, you know uh, wrongdoings when it came to the election procedures and processes in the United States, what that works to do is is incite more um, potential harm in the ongoing and future elections of this country. And, you know, without being there in person to testify, he simply put everything that he wanted to on paper and was therefore in a position to not have to face any pushback for that. The people who wanted to push back are Democrats, are people that still feel fear in this country. The people who went along with that are the election deniers and many of the base that follow Donald Trump. And Bill's worth pointing out, a lot of those election deniers are on ballots that are coming up in this midterm election.
0: I guess one of the most uh, telling aspects of this was was the testimony that, that I I guess it it seems, you know, obvious to most people but trump actually admitting in 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 some of the testimony uh that he had lost the election what was he he was talking i guess it was his chief of staff at the time and says we can't let the american people know that i've lost so you know that in itself is an admission that that, that he knew that he had lost and this this whole thing that it was concocted as a result of this was it wasn't something he even believed in but he was just something he was trying to put over onto the american people
3: I think what we saw last uh, during that last and, and potentially final hearing before, uh, before the midterms, at least, Bill, was some of the most remarkable uh, bits of, of video and testimony over all of the nine hearings. Number one, hearing from Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, who was a senior aide in Mark Meadows' office at the time, saying that Donald Trump, you know, it was embarrassing that they lost and they needed to be able to get in front of this, showing where that kind of mind frame was uh, around Donald Trump, that he understood uh, what was about to happen to him in that his political career was coming to an end i think bill there was secondary parts of that um, testimony that really worked to shut down ongoing nonsense from members of the republican party including the long pushed narrative that nancy pelosi for some reason was able to you know stop the national guard from coming to the capitol even though that is a call that's made by um, the president and the secretary um, of defense nancy pelosi is on tape talking to the former governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, trying to get the National Guard from Virginia to come into Washington and trying to get those conversations up the ladder to the White House. That pushes back really, really toughly on a Republican talking point here and works to kind of bolster that that narrative that Democrats have been pushing by saying, look, this was a doing of the former president. We were trying to protect the Capitol, uh, not what Republicans
0: are saying, and that we were the ones
3: who were kind of letting
0: this all take place. Well, especially because the photographic evidence of that the, the this congressman that made those accusations standing right beside Pelosi when she's on the phone uh, to Mike Pence and to the governor, uh, which, uh, which I guess just underscores what you've been saying. I mean, you know, the narrative is out there, and they're just going to throw it out there, and there are people that are going to swallow it and simply believe it because they they are, you know they're they're fans of Donald Trump, I suppose. Uh, but that it's very difficult to fight something like that because you know the, the evidence is self evident there. Uh, right in front of their eyes, yet the Republican talking points are there, and and I guess reinforced by the the Tucker Carlson's and the Sean Hannity's and others like that, and it's it's going to be very difficult to try to, to convince those people otherwise.
3: Absolutely. I mean, look, it's going to be difficult to convince people otherwise of what took place on January 6th, just like it has been difficult to talk to um, or to get some Republican lawmakers to stop denying what took place uh, in November of 2020 in that Donald Trump actually lost this election. Remember, January 6th happened because of a repeated lie that an election was stolen when it wasn't and that there was all this malfeasance in the election process when there wasn't solely because... Donald Trump was expected to and did lose this election. And now you have in 2022, someone like the the um, gubernatorial candidate in Arizona, Republican Carrie Lake, who is a 2020 election denier, potentially set to win that governorship in Arizona, which could have implications on how elections are run in that state. So this is a crisis that took place more than two years ago that could continue to kind of roll out and play out in this country, depending on what happens in these upcoming midterms.
0: Well, and and those are the very important ones, and I know you've been talking about that with your reporting from Washington over the last little while, and Arizona, not the only contentious issue, Georgia, Texas, other states that have already uh, changed some of their election parameters uh, that are going to have an impact, uh, just uh, even on these midterms coming up, but certainly in the uh, the general election coming up two years from now as well, which leads me to uh, another one of the stars who's going to be out there. We always know about the Trump influence on the Republican Party, Reggie. Uh, but the word is is that uh, Barack Obama, uh, former President Barack Obama, uh, is going to start campaigning uh, in the, some of those uh, states like Georgia and Michigan in the final full weeks. Uh, does does he still have the, the the sway? Does he still have that ability to to move votes? He certainly did in the last general election. It seemed in Georgia anyway.
3: Yeah, and and he he still has um, a heavy kind of political clout that he brings along with him. There is influence that can be had from. Uh, the former leader of the Democratic Party, especially in a state that uh, has gone, it may not be blue, but it is definitely purple, meaning that there are kind of Democratic inroads across Atlanta, especially when you look at the polling right now. It's kind of a little mishmash, especially on the Senate side between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. You know, some have Warnock up 2%, some have Warnock up 12%. What that leads to, though, is an opportunity for former President Barack Obama to take advantage of, to say, look, here is the work that someone like Um, Raphael Warnock has done in the Senate since he, uh, you know, took over in a special election a few years ago. Here's what he can do for this state. Now, what we don't know is who Obama is going to kind of stump with. Will it be um, Stacey Abrams running for governor? Will it be with Raphael Warnock? It is simply going to be an opportunity here for the Democrats to uh, potentially try to solidify what could become a make or break election, because especially in the Senate, uh, this could determine the kind of control that the Senate has. If Raphael Warnock sticks, uh, sticks, you know, stays in place and the other kind of elections fall in place, you know, we could be left with another 50 50 Senate with the vice president casting tie breaking votes. So there are some real kind of, there's real meat that's involved with what's going on on the ground and with what Bar- Barack Obama can bring.
0: Reggie, what's going on in, in Michigan? Because that was a key state and has always been a pivotal state in the last couple of general elections, especially. Uh, Gretchen Whitman, of course, the, the Democratic governor is is up for re-election. Uh, but I understand there's a pretty steep challenge there.
3: Of course there is. Uh, and and there is um, this kind of harkens back to what took place uh, in 2020 because election denialism uh, is yeah. playing out in full force in support uh, of Republican candidates in, uh, in Michigan. Uh, and Well, you know, there is Republicans kind of moving up in the ballots. They are moving up in the polls, rather. Gretchen Whitmer still has a you know, a, a better opportunity here of winning uh, than not, though we are going to see former President Barack Obama on the ground in Michigan as well, showing that there is a potential here for some concern. Uh, I think Democrats are are feeling mildly confident over where things could go, at least when it comes to that governorship. There's also been, you know, some potential talks here of down the road, maybe looking at 2028, does Gretchen Whitner Whitmer, Whitmer kind of find herself in line and and on a ticket with someone like Kamala Harris. Those are conversations that sparked up uh, over the weekend, showing that there is still some uh, belief here amongst the Democrats that they do have um, a winning opportunity, at least in the governor's race. It might be close. It might be a little too close for comfort, but I don't think that Democrats are, are ready to just write off Michigan yes, as of yet.
0: Story, amazingly enough, that almost got buried because of the testimony from the January 6th hearing uh, late last week uh, was, uh, as you reported earlier, that uh, the Trump lawyers had asked uh, the Supreme Court uh, to intercede in the, in the Mar-a-Lago situation, uh, the, the documents classified, declassified, whatever that might be. Uh, and essentially what they said is, we're not even going to wade into this. They're not going to render opinion on this one way or another, uh, which had to be a blow to the Trump people right now. But And you have to wonder what the ramifications of that are going to be, uh, because Trump has really relied on some of the appointees, and let's face it, he's put three people on the Supreme Court when he was president, uh, to basically do his bidding for him in the courts, and it's not, not working out that well for him.
3: No, you're absolutely right. Uh, and And I think we we talked about this um last week when uh, when I was on the show with you that the Supreme Court was hesitant to do this because the Supreme Court yeah. does not want to get itself involved in um you know, in kind of what could be political tied up knots. You know, we saw what happened in two thousand when the Supreme Court had to actively involve themselves in choosing. Um, You know, who would ultimately become the president. They do not want to be in that situation. They don't mind finding themselves in a position of trying to set precedent. But at the end of the day, um, you know, when you have an appeals court uh, that has you know filed all the paperwork that it needs to do to say that something is going right, something is not going right. If the Supreme Court thinks, you know, we could make a decision here that could ultimately backfire or that we don't need to be involved with that's what they're going to do. And this was a huge blow to Donald Trump. It obviously did not sit well with him. We saw numerous statements put out by the former president and people within his legal team. Um, and we still have the former president pushing back on, on you know, the entire situation uh, around that search, around everything to do with classified documents. But at the end of the day, this is a loss for a president who, at the end of the day, kind of built the the foundation that the Supreme Court is sitting on, at least currently.
0: What's the, the word on the street in Washington right now about Merrick Garland and where is he going to go with all this information and this data? Because uh, I know there are some voices, Reggie, that are simply saying, what's what's taking so long? What, ch- charge the guy. The evidence seems to be overwhelming, but they haven't done that yet.
3: They haven't done that yet, and that's because this is a Department of Justice that has really tried to walk itself back from the um, perception that DOJ had under the Trump administration, that they were an an arm's length uh, kind of office or bureau of the White House that kind of worked at the White House's bid. And now you have Merrick Garland, who has kind of stepped in, stayed out of the spotlight. Remember, he, he kind of begrudgingly came forward and gave a press conference about um, the former president a few months ago, uh, breaking his silence after, you know, what, almost two years uh, on the job here. This is not something that he takes lightly. And he tries to stay out of the political spotlight. Is he going to potentially lay a charge we don't know remember there are a number of department of justice investigations underway whether it's linked to the search or whether it's linked to january 6th they're not going to expire uh if and when democrats gain lose control uh or at least keep or lose control uh in january and this is going to be an attorney general who continues to work behind the scenes who says uh that the work is going to get done and it is going to get done properly Without any influence. And there are some Democrats saying, look, you need to speed things up. We need to ensure that we can, you know, quote unquote, get Donald Trump. But the attorney general sees this as not a position of getting somebody as ensuring that the facts are there if
0: and when they make a final decision. Yeah. And, and as, uh, you know, you mentioned one of your reports. I mean, I know the Democrats would love to see something like that just before the midterms, but Merrick Garland doesn't seem interested in that. He's, uh, it's the pursuit of justice, not the political end of things. It's gonna be a very busy week. As always, we'll watch for your reporting on Global National, Reggie. Thanks for this today. Stay well and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Reggie Cicchini, uh Global's man in Washington, of course, uh, bringing us up to speed on uh, the melodramatic elements of, of the Donald Trump situation down there, certainly, but some very, very heavy-duty uh, political ramifications uh, to what's going on. And uh, as Reggie's been reporting, the midterms uh, just a few weeks away there, and the uh, you know, balance of power very much in doubt there. <laughs>